Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Lord. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your faithfulness. Just ask that you will speak to us through your word. You encourage us. You will just help us to know how much we need you, and that you do draw us, you do love us, and you are the best husband. In Jesus' name, amen. great to be here speaking on a wonderful subject and I want to get into that shortly but first I think it would be good to have a little quiz um, so we do have a picture I hope on the screen there we are um, and um, the question with that is what do these four images have in common as you kind of study it you might be kind of working that out um, it's just about readable um, if you haven't got there yet that all things victims of adultery have done. Graffiti a car, put manure on the top of a car, <laughs> um, put an advert in a newspaper to shame, put a yard sale of all, all the stuff that is for sale out there. Now you might be here and, and maybe you have experienced adultery. And I'm so sorry if that is you, but it it's probably and perhaps hopefully the case that most of us haven't. If we have, you're in a good place, you're in family to support, heal and help you. But for those of us who haven't, I think we've all experienced some degree of betrayal through unfaithfulness of some kind or another. You've been let down. People have disappointed you. And what have you done in those moments when that's happened? Be honest. I'm not asking you to confess out loud unless you really want to right now. Um, what have I done? I I've given sometimes people a piece of my mind. I've told them what I think about them for letting me down. Or maybe this is even worse. I have pretended to like them whilst being simmering with anger on the inside. <laughs> and I will never trust them again. But they probably don't know that. N none of that's good. Right. But what about you? What about you? We're in this series, it's called Behold and Become, and we're about beholding the beauty of God so we can become more like Him. And in this passage, we get the revelation of how God responds to the worst kind of unfaithfulness, and it's holy, not a human response, and He responds with this revelation of a name which is really very, very rarely used by Christians. He says, call me my husband. And that's really apt today. Today is actually World Marriage Day. Did anybody know that? Um, and it's a few nods around like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bet you didn't get, if you're married, your, your spouse a happy World Marriage Day card this morning. But in two days' time, you might want to buy a card because it's Valentine's Day, right? 14th of February, Valentine's Day. Does anybody else growing up, feel like they hated Valentine's Day. Just arms in the air, we'll do a little survey. Yeah, there's a few of us, not, not many people want to admit that. I hated Valentine's Day. Because it reminded me of just, I'm sing, I was single most of that time, and I felt like I was unloved. Nobody wanted me. I had no one special to share Valentine's Day with. And year that went by after year after year just rubbed in the sense of rejection. And in a Christian culture... Like, I don't know why this is the case, because the scriptures almost point the other way. But like, if you're not married, there's something wrong with you. 
there's kind of the sort of, it's just rubbish, by the way. If anybody ever thinks that, that's just utter nonsense. Um, there's nothing better than being single or married. But that's how I, I felt. I really didn't like Valentine's Day because I wasn't married myself. But, you know, now I'm, it's sad, but I know people who are, oh, it's poor river. <laughs> it's all right. I'm a parent. I know what that's like. We're very relaxed about that. That happens. <laughs> it's not an issue. Um, where was I? It was Valentine's Day, weren't we? And um, my hatred and dislike of Valentine's Day. Okay, I need to move on from that, otherwise we're going to be here for too long. Um, but I've also sadly come across people who are married who thought all of that sense of being alone would be answered just by being married, right? They, that, that would get rid of all of that. But actually, some people who are married that I've come across, they feel more alone and unwanted than ever, despite being married. So what's, what's going on here? I think it means that we each have this need to be known, this deep longing to be loved, but not just by anybody, but someone you can absolutely trust. And that's what today's message is about. It's in three parts. The first part's a little bit controversial, a little bit, but it'll be called Get the Taste Out of Your Mouth of All Lesser Loves, then we're going to look at taste and see that the Lord is good. And then we'll finally finish up with become willing to be eaten yourself so others can taste the goodness and beauty of the Lord. And I wonder, I wonder whether all that uncertainty that you feel in life, all the unsettledness, all that restlessness that goes on, is all due to the fact that you haven't fully experienced the love of God. The fullness of that love. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm just saying that maybe that's, a, that's the issue of what you need to pursue. And if you experience that love, if that love really was oozing over you and out of you, wouldn't it change you in some way? Wouldn't it compel you? Wouldn't it consume you to love others in a way that you've never yet been able to love them? In the run-up to preparing this message... I was in my prayer life, I was lamenting the lukewarmness in my own heart to God in prayer. And I was just honestly praying like, Lord, I, help me, I just, I just don't feel ablaze with love. I feel cold. I feel like I'm not like I was like pre-COVID or I was like in those first weeks when I got saved. And I'm not like those persecuted believers that I've met in Korea. I'm not like those impoverished Christians out in East Africa who are on fire for you. Lord, what's wrong? Help me. Let my heart be ablaze again. Lord, God. And I was reminded of this experience that one of my heroes of the faith, D.L. Moody, described. D.L. Moody, if you don't know, he's a 19th century preacher. Some say, up until Billy Graham and modern technology, that he'd preached to the most people in the world. But before that happened, two women were praying for him in his church that he would be baptized with love. He had a pretty fruitful, pretty effective ministry for, <laughs> for many years. But there was something more that he knew he needed. And he'd been crying out, Lord, I want to know this love. And then he describes in his 
writings, a time when he was just walking on the streets of New York City and suddenly the outpouring of God came upon him and he had to get off the streets, rush up into to a room out of the way and just minute after minute, almost hour after hour, the presence of God was so strong on him. He was overwhelmed with the love of God that you can see he had to, had to ask God to stay his hand. I cannot cope with the love that you're pouring out into my heart right now. Don't, don't you want something of that? Aren't you hungry for that? The next day after praying that kind of prayer, I was in my prep for this sermon, Hosea chapter 2. And I just sensed the Lord saying, this is the answer. You want to be baptized in my love? You want to know what my love is like? It's here, duh. It's in the passage. I've called you to preach your one. I want to baptize you as you're preparing it, preaching it. And those that you're speaking with, this is what they need. They need to know my red hot, zealous, jealous love. And that leads us to the first point then of getting all of these lesser loves, the taste of all of those lesser things, the trashy taste of them out of our mouths. Ah, but you might be here and um, maybe you're thinking, like I did, by the way, I became a Christian when I was 21, so I can still just about remember what that was like. I'm from a non-Christian background. But you might be here and you're sort of thinking you're on this journey, perhaps in the early sort of stages of investigating faith or spirituality, and like, this just sounds too good to be true. Ah, I used to think that. Or like, it just sounds a bit sentimental, a bit lovey, lovey, gushy. Has it got any substance to it? Is it, is it real or is it just make-believe, nice ideas? Well, it's historical, it's real. I can tell you that. It's, it's credible and it's rooted in history as this passage that we're going to get into and study was. It was written probably around about 750 years before Jesus Christ would be born by Hosea, this prophet A bit of background history would be that at that time, the nation of Assyria was the dominant power. It was a huge, growing empire. And we know this because about 100 years before, it was still developing. But it would receive tribute from different nations around it so that they would be at peace with them. And this powerful Assyrian empire would fight the likes of Syria in that. And if you were to go to the British Museum not far away, you would find an object called the Black Obelisk of Shalmanasseh III. It may not seem like much, but when that was found, that was considered to be one of the most precious objects ever found in history. And on that, part of that is a depiction of King Jehu, who we read about in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, bringing tribute to Shalmanasseh III at that time in Assyria so that the nation of Israel would be protected. But Shalmanasseh III didn't stay in charge, (laughs) unfortunately. And you weren't able to keep bringing tribute to ensure safety for your nation or support against your enemies. So forward a hundred years or so, and a man called Tiglath-Pileser II takes over the, the rule of the Assyrian Empire, and he sets his focus on the destruction of Israel. He doesn't want to have just tribute brought to him. He wants them to no longer exist, to be completely wiped out. Yet Israel initially had no idea that that was going on. 
Now, a bit more context, because when I first read Hosea, I had no idea what it was about. And maybe you feel the same way. Um, it was a bit awkward for me because I was an intern at the time charged to help the senior pastor of a church in Nottingham write a book on the 12 minor prophets. And the first book of the 12 minor prophets is Hosea. They're minor, by the way, not because they're less important, but because they're shorter. So I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. This sounds like gobbledygook to me. It doesn't make sense. What is this book about? So I had to understand the context that it was written in to make sense of it. And the context really helps here. So you have a split that's taken place in the people of Israel. You have a northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north and the two in the south. There's division there. And Hosea is primarily writing to these, these nations that, or this combining tribal group of ten nations in northern Israel together. That's who he's writing to. And they've been under good leadership but not godly leadership for some time, which has meant that they've been able to expand, get wealthy, They've had a time of peace and plenty. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. There's all sorts of injustice going on in the nation at this time. And, um, and people are worshipping false gods. They are claiming to be religious. It would be like today, claiming to be Christian with their mouths. But actually, they're also worshipping all these other false gods and doing different things at the same time. It was crass spiritual adultery. And in an extraordinary way, Hosea's own marriage was to reveal that. In that he would be called to marry a woman, a prostitute, and then she'd be unfaithful to him. And then he would take her back again as a picture of the spiritual adultery of the nation of Israel and God's heart to bring reconciliation and to love his bride again. This is the kind of awkward language that you heard read at the start. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face. Descriptions of exposing herself and her cleavage to objectify herself, dehumanize herself in order to get something from these false gods, approval, affection, adoration, money, all of that kind of stuff. It's a crude description of spiritual adultery that's taking place. And many Christians today, we would say, like, yeah, I, I could never be guilty of that. Don't worship gold statues. Don't go and offer incense to Baal or things like that. You know, we shouldn't, but, but maybe you love the world more than you should. James, Jesus' half-brother, put it like this. He actually uses these words, you adulterous people. Oh. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And James's audience had fallen in love with the world in a number of different ways, but one of them would be that they preferred rich people over poor people. That they kind of liked the significance and the status that people of money might try and bring to them. So they sort of would sidle up to that. Maybe it would rub off on them. It's a little bit like our celebrity culture today, isn't it? How we revere the cool people, the impressive people. Ah, oh, there's someone like that. Let me get a selfie with them. Oh. <laughs> All that kind of stuff, right? It's fascinating that we live in a culture that worships and idolizes people 
people pretending to be people who've done significant things. And yet we do not honor or value the significant people that they're pretending to be. Isn't that weird? I wonder whether you have fallen in love with the world in different ways. You've got caught up in worldly ways. Maybe it's something that big is always better. It's a classic worldly thing. Applies to your flat, your house, your money, your bank account. Everything needs to be supersized for me to be happier with, with life. Maybe you're more of a person who has a mistress. Perhaps it's your career. Perhaps it's your reputation. Perhaps it's what other people think about you. Or perhaps you're more in the, the camp of sort of one night stands. You know, I'm worshiping God. I love you, God. But just one night, I'm going to go over here and do that. And then I'll come back to you. It's all right. What worldly ways have you adopted? And then God through Hosea is saying, take the taste of that trash out of your mouth. It may taste sweet, but it will soon turn sour. Let me illustrate that by um, telling you about a recent television watching experience with my kids. We were watching Planet Earth together. Um, and we were learning about this Pisonia tree. And it's an amazing tree. You can see it there. And it sort of secretes this sweet nectar deliberately to entice birds to come in. So it draws all these different birds in that kind of then will make their nests on the branches because it's, it's putting off this sweet nectar that they taste and they get comfortable. But then it produces these seeds. They're quite long. They're covered in a thick mucus and little miniature hooks, loads and loads and loads of them so that they will attach on to the fledgling sort of new hatchling birds in such significant numbers that they can't fly. They fall to the ground to either die of starvation or to be eaten by scavengers. The Pisonia tree is better known as the bird killer tree. Now, if you're watching that kind of thing with your kids, it's really awkward because like, <laughs> they like ask you all sorts of questions. They're like, that's horrible. How can that happen? <laughs> that's death and all that kind of stuff. But leaving that aside, what an incredible picture of sin. Think about that. that it tries to taste so sweet, suck you in, and it soon turns sour and seeks to destroy you. What tastes do you need to get out of your mouth? How do you do that? You do that through just confessing them to the Lord. We're called to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What things in your life are competing with that? Some of the ways that that can come up is like, you know I'm meant to do my devotional time this morning, but there's something else that's got in the way. Maybe you love that more. You want to give to the work of the church or ministry, but you're not wanting to, to do that because maybe there's something that you love more. So we're just going to take a moment just of stillness and silence. It's not condemnation. We're doing it on the basis of a promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We want to get all of that out, right? Get the taste out of your mouth. So just take a moment now, however you want to do that, bow your head.
whatever God has brought to mind, just to get yourself ready before we enter into the next part of the message. God, we just thank you. You're so forgiving. And right now, we just ask you to cleanse us. Take away sin. Reorder our lives. Get us ready, Lord, to be baptized again with your love. Amen. The next point is taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, we've been... um, We've been borrowing, doing borrowing a dog, <laughs> uh, borrow my dog um, thing at the moment. Um, about once a week, we borrow this lovely dog, hoping the owner isn't listening to this, but uh, just in case. Um, but um, essentially, we have these dog treats, and uh, maybe you've seen them. They look kind of a little bit like a bone, but it's a fake bone. Um, and the dog is mildly interested in these treats. It's unfair to call it a treat because it's not that excited about it. We'll kind of eat it. Sometimes it leaves them. But I tell you, if you give this dog chicken, oh my word, how excited does it get? It like loves you. And it will just never eat this again, essentially, <laughs> until it gets really, really hungry again. Because it's worthless. It's, it's tasteless by comparison. That is what God is seeking to do in Hosea with his love. Saying like, you've got these dog bone types of love in the world, whatever that is, for money, fame, approval, career, all of that stuff. Now you need to get hold of my love. It's the real deal. It's the glorious, rich meat that you're going to love. And there's seven flavors to it in this passage. We're going to work through them one by one. We're going to chew on his love. The first of those is jealous. God's love is jealous. Not in a human way, but in a holy way. And if you track it in the passage, you'll see three times there's a therefore. The first two therefores are quite different to the second therefore. Verse 6, verse, I think it's verse 9, there's a therefore. Therefore. And what is God coming to do in those moments? He's coming to expose the inadequacy of these other loves. He's coming to strip them bare and naked and show how impotent how ineffective they really are by withdrawing his presence so that you see that all the good that you might have experienced through them is from him anyway. They're not doing it for you. They're rubbish. They're deceiving you. They're lying to you. These loves are awful. Get away from them. It's me who's the real deal. That's what God is doing. He's a jealous lover. He's jealous for you. Holy Love, jealous for your affection, jealous for your protection, jealous for your soul's satisfaction, only to be found in him. And that's why he came. He came for his bride. So what does God do in the face of infidelity? Does he get revenge? Does he go graffiti a car? Does he just walk away like, oh, I've given up on them? He comes to fight for his bride. He comes to demonstrate how much he loves her. Because he's a holy husband, full of love. He is the jealous lover. And the language in this says, in that day. You'll see that, verse 16, verse 18, verse 21. In that 
day, the prophet is saying. Now, there would be a fulfillment later in life when the people would come back from exile. But the greater fulfillment of that is in Jesus, which has happened in that day. This will happen. And then again, when he comes again, in that day at the second coming is the fullness of this. He's a jealous lover come to fight and rescue his bride away from all of these false loves that we can get caught up in. That is the first flavor. The second flavor is that this love is persuasive. Persuasive love. Verse 14 is, says that he's going to come. Therefore now I will come and I will allure her. The word literally means persuade her. And then it goes on to describe, I'm going to speak tenderly, not judgmentally to her. When Jesus came, God came every word that he spoke was to assure you of his love for you. Every word. You see it throughout his ministry. One of my favorite places is in John's first century biography, John chapter 4. His conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. It's interesting because Samaria was the capital of Israel that Hosea was speaking to. So she's kind of a little bit symbolic of the bride that he's trying to win back. And Jesus, he's a Jewish male rabbi. And he's crossing all sorts of cultural boundaries to get to this woman who considered to be shamed, an outsider, ostracized. You're getting water when no one else is is around. And she's a Samaritan. He shouldn't come near her. But I tell you, he breaks down every barrier. Nothing's going to hold him back from getting to his bride. And this woman, she's been either widowed or mistreated by five former partners. Most likely cast her out with insufficient reason. She's with a sixth man now who dishonors her by not marrying her. And okay, maybe her sin is such that she's sleeping with him to gain security because there's no social welfare protection for her at that time in society. Rather than trusting in God. But she's had six bad lovers. And Jesus is coming as the seventh. The perfect husband. Hebrew number seven is in the meaning of wellness. The day of rest. The day of peace. The day of shalom. The day of putting everything right as it should be. That is the ministry of Jesus Christ. He comes to persuade you with his beautiful words of his love. The third flavor is that he's generous. He's generous with this. Verse 15, he comes and says, I'll give her her vineyards back. He already says, verse 8, he's given grain and new wine and oil. And then goes on there to say that he's lavished. What a word. Lavished. Lavished her with gold and silver already. What a God. He's not a mean guy. He doesn't just have a little bit of love for you to taste and experience. It's taste and see that the Lord is God. And you start to think about the ministry of Jesus in this context, the first miracle, turning water into a crazy amount of wine. Yeah, vineyards, wine, there's a deliberate connection. Yes, to joy and new life in the wine, the spirit of God, but also the blood of Christ and the abundance of his generosity. Then you go on, John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave the generosity of God his own son. 
And then Jesus, God himself, willingly gives himself to pay for our spiritual adultery. And then the scriptures talk about this in amazing language. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? All things. That's insane. The mighty God who made everything, giving us all things. And Ephesians chapter 1 fleshes it out. Every spiritual blessing, if you're a believer, you're given every spiritual blessing. Not material blessings, because they'll only last for this lifetime. But every spiritual blessing, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, lavished with wisdom and grace and love. Oh, wow. What an amazing God. The fourth flavor is that this love is transformative. Verse 15 continues that the valley of Achor, which means trouble, is transformed to a door of hope. Again, it's just Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. He comes to a discouraged fisherman, Simon, and he's transformed through his time with Jesus to become a courageous great preacher of the gospel, Peter. Jesus comes to people who are beaten down with sicknesses and he heals them. He comes to the lepers who are distraught because they're outcasts and he heals them and brings them back into community. He doesn't just heal the paralyzed man who's unable to walk so he can walk again. He forgives all of his sin. He takes a dis, dis, just hated tax collector, Levi, and transforms him into a beloved preacher of the gospel and author of one of the gospels, Matthew. He comes to people who are storm-tossed disciples in fear and anxiety, and he stills the storm. That's just the first few chapters of Mark's gospel about Jesus, by the way. Whatever darkness you're in, whatever valley of trouble you're experiencing, God can turn it around. It seems like it's horrible, but it becomes a door of hope. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? Because he is with me, and your rod and your staff, they protect me. When Jesus is with you, trouble becomes opportunity for hope. His love transforms things. The fifth flavor is his love is cleansing. Verse 17, I'll remove All of those false names, those false things you've been worshipping from your mouth. I like the way the message paraphrases this. I will wash your mouth out with soap. Kind of sounds a bit nasty, doesn't it? My mum used to threaten that when I was growing up. Uh, She never did it, by the way. But that's not what it means here. This is a grace. This is a good thing. This is like the, the instrument that probably causes us to sin the most, our mouths, what we say, and the hypocrisy with it of how we can be singing a love song of devotion and worship to God, and then as soon as the preacher starts preaching, you're on your phone doing your shopping for Amazon or whatever, <laughs> worshiping at the, the altar of mammon. We can do that. I know I've done that. But God can like wash our mouths out with soap. We can be clean. We can be forgiven. He can forget all that bad stuff that was done. This is a holy, making us holy through his love. It's cleansing love. Then number six, this flavor is that this love is secure. Not once, not twice, but three times. Did you notice this repetition? This is so cool. God says, I will betroth. I will betroth. I will betroth. Wow. These are his 
love marriage vows. I will betroth myself to you. I, I will. I will betroth. I'm God. You can't stop me from doing that because I'm all powerful. This is what he says. He goes on, verses 19 and 20. He's affirming and clarifying it. And he's saying, what's the basis of that? He says, I'll betroth you forever. Just in case you hadn't got that. I'm the eternal God, but forever. It can't be broken. I won't change my mind. It's going to last for all eternity. And that is backed up by everything else that he's going to go on to say here about his nature and his characteristics. He says, I'm going to betroth you on the basis that I am just, that I am righteous because of my steadfast love for you, because of my faithfulness, because of my mercy. All the attributes of God working together to say, it is impossible for this to be undone. I died on the cross for you. This great act in history, it cannot be revoked. This is why Paul will write that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Church, do you know this? The sense of security that you have. Come hell or high water. Demons or angels. The present or the future. He goes on to say, death or life. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're secure. This love is the most powerful force in the universe because nothing can break it unbreakable love. The final flavor is that this love is intimate. Verse 20 says that you will know the Lord. In the NIV it says you will acknowledge the Lord. More literally, it is the word know. And that's a deliberate choice of word because it takes us back to when that same word was used in Hebrew, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when Adam knew Eve and she conceived. There's an intimacy. This isn't a long-distance romance, so God up above in heaven somewhere out there. This is intimate. He's down here with you in your heart. It's about union. There's a joining that happens between a believer and Christ. We are one with him. He comes to take on flesh so that we can to take on our nature, if you like, our humanity, so then we can get inside him and then be fruitful for him. We can conceive, or he can conceive through us to produce fruit for his glory. It's an intimate experience. And this is why I believe God chooses very specific language of how we should call him. Verse 16, he doesn't say, a husband. Your husband, this husband, their husband, my husband. You will call me my husband. My husband. It's, it's personal. Do you see? It's personal. It's, it's intimate. Do you know him like that yet? You can a sign that we really know the Lord like that is that we'll live like Hosea. And this brings me to my final point. Become willing to be eaten. That others might taste and see in your life the goodness of God. We can only do that through his love. I've often wondered, maybe you have as well, how did Hosea do this? Like, what a, what a rough deal. Chapter 1, verse 2, go and marry a woman of whoredom. Great. Thank you very much, God. How did he cope with her unfaithfulness? All the nights when she's meant to come in, but she's late coming back, and the smell of other lovers are upon her, all of that. How did, how did, how did he cope with that? 
How is he sustained in that, of that, that heartbreaking sense of betrayal? And then go into chapter 3, verse 1. It's like, now take her back and love her. How did he do that? How did he not get angry with God and feel like he was, God, you betrayed me. What are you doing? This is unfair. I know there's some people in the room who feel like that right now. Do you know? Because he was consumed by the red, hot, zealous, jealous love of God. And through personal tragedy in his life, he came to understand that love so much more that he literally became the embodiment of it. He's experiencing this amazing love of God so he could embody that, so he could live that out, so he could reveal the nature of what God's love is like in his marriage. His marriage was to become a picture of God's love. That he would take her back and show mercy and love and not rejection, but show affection instead. Isn't that what all marriages are meant to ultimately reveal? Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. There's a call to obedience in this. I puzzled a while over verse 15 in this passage. The heart of God being expressed that they would come back and they would answer me or respond to me like they did in the days of Egypt. What what did he mean by that? And then I felt like it was hyperlinking back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 7. God, through Moses, has just basically expressed all of his marriage vows and commitments to the people of God. The Ten Commandments is that moment he's made his vows. And then he calls upon a response. He said, I do. Now he's waiting. What will the people say? And they say this. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. That's how Hosea finishes his prophecy. Chapter 14, the final chapter, says, return to the Lord. The final verse is, walk in his ways. Walk in his ways. One of the great challenges of Western Christianity today, I fear, is that we mistake like approval or affirmation for obedience. That we like to nod at stuff that we hear in a sermon or in a podcast or we read it in a book and go, oh yeah, that's true, I agree with that. That's so right. And we think that by approving and agreeing with it that we're actually applying it and living it. You know, and you kind of almost trick yourself into that. Like, I agree with the preacher, therefore I am doing that. Reminds me a little bit, when I was at university, we used to joke that before exams were coming up, that we would put our textbooks under our pillow so that all the information would magically kind of come into our head overnight. doesn't work that way. I'm really sorry. You've got to apply it. Don't put this sermon under your pillow. Let's apply it together. Let's work it out. Let's put it into practice. Are we going to get these tastes out of our mouth regularly? Daily confession and repentance of sin. God, search my heart. Show me. If there's any unclean way in me, I don't want that trashy love stuff. I want to know your love. I don't want anything competing with you in my heart for first place. I want to seek first your kingdom, not my kingdom, not my way. And then it's taste and see that the Lord is good. Right, isn't it? How do you do that? You read his word. 
Listen to the lover's voice speaking to you in the scriptures. I know that's hard. It's a battle. It's spiritual warfare to get up and open your Bible early in the morning or late at night whenever you're doing it. My baseline, what I go to, my baseline when I'm finding it hard, I use the Lectio 365 Bible app. Because it does it all for me. And if I'm really struggling, I'll just put it on and I'll listen to it. If you haven't heard of it, start there. Ten minutes a day meditating on the Word of God will do you so much good. We want to take these truths from our heads into our hearts so that we then become crazy lovers. Hosea, he was a crazy lover. You want a definition of what crazy love looks like? Hosea is a pretty good one, isn't he? Right? We want to become like that by being filled up with his love. And we need to have the right definition of success as we do that as well. Hosea, by the world standard, was unsuccessful in his ministry. Did you know that? People didn't listen. Israel did not largely repent and turn. No mega church was built. No massive numbers came to the Lord because of his ministry in his own time. Judged by the world, he was unsuccessful. In the eyes of God, he was so successful. Because he was obedient. Because he was faithful. Because he did everything that he was asked of. And because of his life and willingness to obey God, we get to taste and see today that the Lord is good. In his life, in his willingness to obey, in his marriage, we get a picture of God's love for his bride. That he would come to die on a cross, to pay our penalty, to set us free from sin. What a savior. So in a moment, we're going to respond, and I'm just going to invite you to stand And we're going to pray for a baptism of love, a filling of the Holy Spirit for each of us. You ready for that? Expectant for that? Right, let's let's pray. Let's pray. Why don't you stand? Lord, we just thank you so much that you are a generous and good God. In this moment now, I'd ask you, pour out your Holy Spirit into every heart right now. Come, have your way. Let people taste and see that the Lord is good. Let them taste the flavor of your love that you know they need the most right now. Come upon them. Come upon every one of us. Listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.